1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Lenora Hansen about uh, her book called The Romantic Rhetoric of Accumulation, which was published by Stanford University Press. Dr. Le- uh, Lenora Hansen is an assistant professor of English at New York University. Lenora, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here
1: um this is a, such a fascinating book and there um, there there is a wide range of topics that we want to talk about and just uh, um as a sort of a promotion, I'll mention it to our listeners. Uh, Romantic Rhetoric of Accumulation, right? If you want to know what the Romantic literature has to do with Palestine, so stay with us to the end of the interview, um, because Lenora has some great stories to tell us about that. So, Lenora, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your field of expertise, and and also how the idea of this book um, came to you?
0: Um, Yeah, sure. I will try to do that. Um, I mean, I don't really think of myself with someone as having fields of expertise. I've never really related to literary studies um, as an expert, I would say. I have more fields of curiosity or fields of uh, meandering or wandering, which um, kind of has something to do with my um, interest in romantic literature anyway. Um, and, And I think the thing that got me really interested in romanticism in the first place were the really intensive and deeply rooted debates about methods of reading, how we read, what it means to read. And these were really fascinating, both practical and philosophical questions to me. Um, so that's what got me interested in, in romanticism more generally. Um, I think as people would probably see reading throughout the book, I have, um, a kind of like explosion of interests and curiosities that I try to thread together, um, thinking through a kind of historical materialist framework. But, um, yeah, so that's, I guess, um, some of the things that I'm interested in would be, you know, like Marxist, Marxist theory, um, Marxist political economy, um rhetorical reading what some other what some people would call deconstruction uh histories of of subsistence um especially as they kind of get recreated over the long arc of capital accumulation um and then just weird other side interests like um 18th century theories of psychology that went under the name of associationism um debates about uh, mechanism and bod- bodily habituation um, the kind of changes in criminalization and criminality in the 18th and the 19th century, gendered social reproduction, et cetera, et cetera. So um, all those things kind of get woven together or constellated throughout the book. Um, that, so that was a lot. I <laughs> just on the first <laughs> um, question, uh, I mean, I can say a couple of things about how the book came about. Um, I mean, this book wasn't my dissertation. There is a very small amount of the book that came out of the dissertation, which is uh, most, an interest in and in discussion of food riots in the 18th century. So that part of the project definitely draws from and was inspired by uh, E.P. Thompson's very classic essay um, on the moral economy of the poor and this idea um, of the kind of collective um, logic or the collective ethos of of food riots that were not these kind of spontaneous combustions of bodies in need, but were well-entrenched cultural practices and habits um, that were aimed at regulating and setting the price of food. Um so I I was just really interested in this idea of um of riots not as a kind of spontaneous outburst but as having their own internal sense let's say i don't really love the word logic but their own regulatory sense um but i i was also like dissatisfied with thompson's analysis of these kind of collective direct actions as being um kind of in the past and having um come in having turned into what he thinks of as more quote, quote unquote revolutionary ideological struggles and i wasn't really satisfied with that somewhat like developmentalist narrative of from the riot to revolution. Um, And I wanted to think more about the persistence of not just riots, but collective actions that otherwise can appear as like irrational or as nonsense um, as they continue to repeat throughout the romantic period um, and in the present. So um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the book comes out of, I would say things that I'm really interested in, in various debates, but also dissatisfied So another kind of inspiration for the book was um, the kind of totalizing narrative that people in literary studies oftentimes have around the 19th century, which is this kind of rupture or break from, let's say, the feudal period to the industrial period or to industrialization. Um, And I found that to be... a, a, a just a reductive way to understand how forms of life, um, agrarian subsistence forms of life actually did continue and were necessary to cap- for capitalism to emerge throughout the 18th and the 19th century. So um, yeah, those are at least two points of kind of inspiration for the book and things that I really wanted to think about more in it.
1: And I can see your, um, the, the the and I can see the influence of your, your interest in this book. You, the, the title, the rhetoric of accumulation, and then disposition, capital accumulation, subs, uh, subsistence, the famine riots—they're all in the book. And I'm really excited to talk to you about them. Uh, before that, can you tell us? You talk about you—you you have you talk about the idea of disposition. Uh, what do you mean by that in the context of your your book?
0: Yeah, that's a good and difficult question. I think maybe <laughs> this is um, in part because I'm very influenced by psychoanalysis but not in a way that really shows up in the book but so every time a question is asked I feel like um there's this explosion of associations that I need to try to organize but um so that's also to say if there's any a point at any point you want to jump in and um and ask me to say something more or have your own thoughts like please do do that otherwise I'll just kind of keep associating forever and ever um but yeah so the I guess I would say to be kind of schematic in a book that's not actually very schematic, Um, I would say that I'm approaching dispossession from two different angles and angles that I don't think have been thought together before or perspectives that I don't think have been thought together before in regards to dispossession. Um, So I'm very much talking about dispossession in a certain Marxist way um, and with a Marxist lens on dispossession as, let's say, like the constitutive violence that is required um, for capitalism to both emerge and to reproduce itself over and over again throughout time. Um, So that dispossession, which is the the ripping of people People um, from the land and the ripping of people away from non-capitalist forms of life and means of subsistence—that this is the, let's say, the constitutive um, event, but an event that reprodu- is reproduced throughout time in order for capitalism to operate. Because, um, as most people understand it, capitalism, right, is dependent upon a stable population of waged workers in order to produce surplus value. Um, And, one thing that's interesting about working in Romanticism to me is that um, the literature produced at that time is produced in the context of this, uh, let's say, r- ripping away of people from the land. And they're being forced into a form of labor, wage labor, which people did not want to conform to at the time. Hence the emergence of all of these forms of criminalization of other ways of living. Um, So there's that kind of... um uh, inspiration or definition of dispossession that's operative throughout the book. But the, I think the more creative and, um, let's say novel aspect of the book probably, um, is my interest in dispossession in a figurative sense, that um, for me, there's no way to think or analyze dispossession outside of figurative language. Um, and in part, this has to do with the fact that when Marx describes dispossession and primitive accumulation in capital, he uses irony in a really intense way um, to indicate how dispossession operates, and in order also in order to critique um, classical political economists on the their um, erasure of the violence of dispossession. Um, But I guess just to say a little bit more about this idea of dispossession as a figure itself or the need to use figurative language to understand dispossession, uh, one, one of the things that I try to show in the book is that we need figurative language to understand dispossession because dispossession is not a linear Uh, doesn't operate through kind of linear causality. It doesn't operate through the kind of successive temporality of narrative. It's highly disruptive to, let's say, traditional models of history that come down to us even from the Romantic period. And so what figurative language allows me to do, at least in terms of understanding dispossession, is it allows us to capture multiple simultaneous meanings or even processes that occur at the same time. Um, And this may sound a little bit abstract, but for anyone who reads poetry, you know that poetic language, which relies upon figure heavily, um, one of the things that makes it so powerful is that it's able to bring multiple different meanings together at the same time. So it's this kind of capacity of figurative language to create multiple simultaneous meanings Um, And and to capture multiple simultaneous processes that I find to be so useful in understanding dispossession. So one thing I I say in the book is that um, dispossession dispossesses us of a certain account of history that we may want to impose a linear causal ordering of history um, that doesn't work when we're trying to understand how capitalism continues to rely on this direct form of violence called dispossession.
1: Uh, And you also talked, we will talk about some specific authors, but how did uh, literary critics in the British literature's long 19th century conceptualize this disposition and in, in the book you go on to talk about two contrasting perspectives with relation to this it would be great if you could talk about that
0: yeah so the way that I was introduced to dispossession um, originally in in my own training in literary studies was primarily through the study of um, a quite famous Romantic-era poet, uh, John Clare, who um, himself lived through the massive wave of enclosures um, that privatized common lands throughout England in the 18th century. And yeah, Clare is like, quite well known as a poet of enclosure or dispossession. I mean, for me, like enclosure and dispossession are somewhat interchangeable terms in this tradition. Um, but yeah, so the way that I was really introduced to thinking about dispossession was in this very historical way, um, which is that the enclosure acts, um, that were introduced in the, um, the late 18th century uh, allowed for the privatization of mass um, amounts of common lands in, in England which were in a, a crucial part to the formation of, of an industrialized labor force but the way that this kind of narrative was introduced to me and the way that I um, was um, th- that I learned about it was very much with this idea that the enclosures in England were a, a somewhat confined or a singular event um, that once the enclosures in England happened, then the kind of process of modern industrialization was on its way and dispossession wasn't really a part of the equation anymore. Um, and this is not even entirely different from the way that certain Marxists have understood dispossession to operate as this kind of um, single event that launches industrial industrialization um, and then is no longer part of the core of capital accumulation. Um, So that is one um, version of dispossession that I'm trying to rework or rethink in the book um, to kind of challenge literary critics to understand dispossession as something that um, happens over time and in an ongoing way, although always with its own specific and contextual contingencies. And this is one, one reason why I think dispossession is such a powerful way to historicize and to think about literature, because it means that as scholars or as readers of Romanticism, a period that hypothetically um, is historic or typically historicized as ending in 1834, um, that the literature that we work on is, deeply significant to understanding processes that continue to occur today. And and as you hinted at before, this is something we can talk about later in regards to my interest in in Palestine and Palestinian literature. Um, but so that's like one of the orientations perspectives on dispossession that I was interested in rethinking and, and challenging um, in the book. The other is a quite different strand of dispossession, um, which comes out of a deconstructive orientation towards, and a thinking of, let's say um, the kind of dispossession of, Ontology, or the dispossession of a privatized self that emerges uh, in the romant- in romantic era poetry. Um, so, deconstructive readers, especially in books that were published throughout the thousand, th- throughout the two thousands, were really invested in thinking about poverty and dispossession not as historical processes, but rather as a kind of philosophical way to understand how the kind of sovereign subject or a sovereign individual could be emptied out and dispossessed of that sovereignty through a certain kind of poetic language, or that language always points us to this kind of constitutive poverty Mm -hmm. of the individual. Um, And while I find that to be a very um beautiful and, and persuasive way to read poetry, it really lacks um a historical engagement with the processes of dispossession that say like Claire's poetry evokes. Um, so I was really interested in in trying to think about what it would mean to take up this uh, language of figure um, and poetic language and not think of it only through this kind of philosophical idea of a dispossessed subject, but rather think about how does figurative language, how does poetic language index the historical kinds of dispossession that um, readers of Claire have focused on? Does that answer the and question?
1: Yeah, yeah. It uh, took me a bit of time to unmute my microphone. <laughs> Sorry.
0: No, no, uh, yeah.
1: How how's the idea of dispos disposition in your book connected with capital accumulation and and its in, what is the impact of disposition on subsistence ways of living?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this is really like the core of the book. I think dispossession along with subsistence are the two key terms that are for me both historical and figurative. Um, so I kind of keep tacking back and forth between dispossession and subsistence. And the reason I do that is because um, I understand dispossession along with other Marxist critics like Rosa Luxemburg to be the process by which subsistence forms of life or one might say non-capitalist forms of life are destroyed in order um for people to become reliant upon again as i said before waged labor the money form um in order to obtain what they need so dispossession is this destruction of um communal forms of life of forms of life that are rooted in the land um of modes of economic production that are, are not oriented towards the production of things but rather the meeting of of needs uh, and needs is a is a Is a term that comes up a lot in the book as well or need. Um, so dispossession is crucial, um, for the, um, his, the mechanisms of capital accumulation to appear in the first place. And then also in a kind of ongoing way for, um, capital to continue, um, making um, people dependent upon wage labor and the production of, um, of surplus value as Marx theorized it, which I can say more about if, if, if you think it makes sense. But yeah, so for, for Luxembourg, one of the really important things about, um, dispossession and something that she argued against Marx was that it, um, it wasn't a process that only happened in England. It wasn't there wasn't this kind of classic case, let's say, of the enclosure of common land in England and then dispossession was done with. Um, she showed that dispossession was necessary for global capital accumulation to occur, um, that in order for capitalism to remain profitable, there always needed to be a subset of um, a, of a population that was not Um, living under or predominantly um, living under capitalist forms of life because capitalism required um, people who... Uh, were not fully integrated into capitalism to consume um, the products that were overproduced in capitalist economies. Um, so for Luxembourg to kind of say that in a more simple way, there always needed to be something outside capitalism in order for capitalism to function. Um, capitalism can't function as a system all on its own. It always needs non-capitalist forms of life in order to be successful and in order to um, to um realize what she would say, to realize surplus value. So this is like a, a very important insight to me in the book. Um, and what I try to do is kind of take this insight outside of the discourse of political economy and actually show um, how the language of um, a vast number of writers, not all of whom are, are poets, um, shows us the proliferating number or proliferating forms of outsides to capital that emerge uh, in the 18th and the 19th century and again continue on to today. So this this idea of there always having to be non-capitalist forms of life and non-capitalist practices in order for capitalism to reproduce itself um, was is one of the main things that I try to unpack in the book and through examples of um uh, figurative language. And I guess you can see here, too, where, as I said before, this idea of the the simultaneity that figurative language affords us, that um, metaphor, tautology, anachronism, the kinds of things that I talk about in the book, are capable of holding contradictory ideas together. So this is one of the ways that figurative language became really useful for me, because if, as Luxembourg shows us and others have shown us, capitalism itself relies upon non-capitalist forms of life, this is, to me, a deep figurative paradox of capitalism, that there have to be these simultaneously um, opposing tendencies within capitalism itself.
1: Hmm. And and, uh, you also talk about the riots of 1795. So just for some historical background, what what was that? What were those riots? And why did they Care.
0: Um so those riots were the 1795 riots um were part of a wave of riots that took place across England, uh in part due to inflation, in part due to the ongoing uh wars with um with France, but also as E. P. Thompson describes it, the the riots were largely an effect of the um, growing tendency within England, um, to export goods elsewhere in order to, um, uh, attain a higher profit um therefore like le- leaving populations within England um, in greater need there were also crop failures that year so you know it's a kind of like um what do you call it? like a condensation of multiple factors I mean if people want to read about the 95 riots I highly recommend just going to Thompson I mean his historical analysis is um is quite sublime <laughs> or his uh, it's I, I can't do justice to it here, but um, that would be kind of the context of the riots. I mean, at the same time, there's the um, ongoing French Revolution, which, as Thompson understands it, starts to tinge these food riots with more of these kind of abstract idea- ideals of freedom and equality. Um, so that's one of the reasons that the 1795 riots were really important
1: to him. Uh and uh, how does you, you you make this argument in the book that um subsistence subsistence style production was actually good at meeting people's needs at that time how, how is that
0: um, yeah, so, I mean, on these, que- these kinds of questions, I honestly think that the sources that I rely on for the book are probably, um, stronger than what I, I have to say, although I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to expand a little bit on what I, I mean by subsistence, but, um, there's a handful of people who, that I would recommend. Um, others to read if they're interested in more of a kind of historical and economic analysis of how subsistence is actually good at meeting people's needs. Um, and so I draw on people like, a, a I think, a very little-known Italian um, Marxist feminist political economist named Antonella Picchio, who wrote a book called Social Reproduction, I believe that's the name of it, um, in the 80s. Uh, I also draw really heavily from the work of David Lloyd, who works primarily primarily. primarily in an Irish context and on Irish history. And then, of course, E.P. Thompson is an important person here. Um, But what their work shows us essentially is that it's entirely a kind of capitalist ideology that makes us believe that um, we need to be producing mass quantities of commodities in order for people's needs to be met. That's actually um, more of a perverse and failing logic that subsistence, because it's a it's a mode of production that is organized solely through the intent of meeting people's needs rather than producing um things for exchange is far better uh, and actually more malleable and more dynamic in terms of being able to adjust to what needs are. And so this is where I I can say something that I think um, I do write a lot about in the book, Which is that um, subsistence isn't this form of life that we've been taught to believe it is under capitalism. Um, We tend to think about subsistence as this meager form of life. I think it evokes fantasies of starvation, of famine, which is a term that I use in the book of essentially barely making it, of of bare life, Um, is a a term that was quite popular a few years ago. But it was only in the 19th century that subsistence acquired. this meaning of meagerness and bareness, um, and part of the argument of the book that I make is that this ideology of subsistence or um, a mode of production that's geared towards meeting people's needs, it takes on this this fantasy of bareness, um, precisely because of a capitalist ideology that emerges to cover over how good subsistence farming, subsistence ways of life, agrarian ways of life are at meeting people's needs, um, and so. The way that I tend to treat subsistence throughout the book is just is kind of like interwoven um or as like Walter Benjamin would say, this kind of constellated um, site that registers a a paradox of, let's say, human or even ecological need. And that paradox is an entanglement of surplus and lack. Um, And But surplus and lack can get reorganized in very different ways under a subsistence economy, which is to say that um, in the way that I think about subsistence, the surplus of subsistence isn't a surplus of commodities or a surplus of money. It's a surplus of time to do other things. It's a surplus of um, culturally specific forms of life. It's a surplus of even, let's say, deviations in language, of a creative capacity in language. And what is lacking in subsistence is the lack of a kind of capitalist excess or a lack of surplus value, this thing that gets wrung from the lives of workers in order for capitalism to make a profit. Um, so what I try to do in the book is to show that subsistence is never one thing, um, that it does register a kind of lack, but that lack is a lack of kind of capitalist violence or that lack is a lack of, um, capitalist surplus. Um, so I'm not against the idea even of thinking about subsistence, uh, as a balance between surplus and lack or excess and, um, and minimality or excess and, um, and yeah, let's say even like meagerness but i think that what we need to do is rehistoricize subsistence to understand that um the relationship between surplus and lack is actually a more um beneficial one for human life
1: uh now let's talk about some specific uh text that you discuss in the book you, there's a poem the maniac by Mirror robinson that um that that represents the idea of enclosure and you also go on to talk about anachronism
0: being Mm -hmm. integral
1: to capitalist division of labor and Mm -hmm. it's represented in the poem. So I'm really curious to know more about that poem and how it represents both closure and also this anachronism uh, being integral to capitalist division of labor. Yeah.
0: um, Yeah. No, Mary Robinson is a really fascinating poet to me. Um, She's not a canonical romantic poet, but let's say she's canonical within the recovery work that's happened, um, within British romantic women poets over the past two decades or so. Um, but Robinson isn't someone who is read in relation to, um, you know, what I'm was talking about earlier as like subsistence forms of life or agrarianism or, um, or enclosure, I mean, Robinson was very much uh, a woman of the city for a long time, and she's probably most famous for being a the a courtesan um, of of uh, the of the prince at, um, in her youth, or for playing Perdita in The Winter's Tale. Um, so she's a little bit of a strange interlocutor to bring uh, into the book. Um, but the thing that I I found fascinating about this poem, The Maniac, uh, is that it, it does this thing that I was talking about before. Um, it sets up this set of uh, this, um, constellation of figures, one of whom is the poetess herself, one of whom, um, is a woman who has been abandoned, one of whom is this maniac. Um, and one of whom uh, is this minstrel figure uh, sitting in a, sitting in a tower. Um, But each of these figures um, become, let's say simultaneously sites of um, oppression for others, or let's say they have power over other figures in the poem, and they are also figures of vulnerability um, uh, themselves or their figures who are vulnerable to the imposition of power by others. Um, so I was really interested in this tension and this nuance that um, Robinson was able to draw out uh, in these figures of, um, of being potentially powerless and also potentially violently powerful. And so I started thinking about that tension in relation to um, something that Angela Davis writes about in a quite famous essay on women and capitalism from the 70s. I believe she wrote it when she was um, still incarcerated. But she talks about the way that capitalism is fundamentally anachronistic in relation to the gendered labor that women do within capitalism and what that anachronism meant for her and the way that I played out throughout this chapter is that um, if capitalism is a mode of production that depends upon wage labor to produce surplus value, then women are essentially an anachronism within that system because um, women's unpaid labor in the home or unpaid labor of care work um, or unpaid labor of um, what some people call affective labor is itself not um essentially capitalist. It's not a waged form of labor. So she tries to argue that capitalism depends upon this return to the past, let's say of like unpaid labor, unwaged labor, in order, um, to be successful as a, um, as a, as a system. So again, this is like one of these ideas of like the outside to capitalism is the d- dependency upon gendered and also racialized labor that isn't, that is not paid. Um, so I kind of, I use this insight to think about the ways that Robinson's poem and the figures that she writes in it, which are um, a woman who potentially has been abandoned, a man uh, abandoned, let's say by her lover, um, with, at, while she's with them, um, she's with child, uh, and the maniac who is. Um, a figure who has potentially abandoned her but has also himself gone mad. I try to historicize the relationship between these two figures and to think about the ways that um women become incredibly precarious figures in the 18th century and the 19th century, um, who do not necessarily have access to wages um, and become increasingly dependent upon men for their own um for their own reproduction and their own subsistence, um, the violence that this exposes them to. Um, but also in the context of the maniac and the poem, right, he is potentially this fi- this powerful figure because of the ways that he um, potentially has abandoned this woman. But he himself is also a wanderer. He's homeless, unhoused is what we might say today. Um, and he is also this figure of dispossession of someone who has been Um, kicked off the land whose means of subsistence have been, um, robbed from him. So again, as I say, like what Robinson is doing is drawing together, as I understand it, um, all of these historical threads of dispossession um, and what Davis calls the anachronism of capitalism's reliance upon unpaid, unwaged labor of women and gendered violence. And she threads them together in this way that, that never solidifies a condemnation of any of these figures um, in their position of power or vulnerability, but essentially constellates all of these historical forces um, for us in the span of um, um a relatively short poem. I know that's a lot to to kind of like throw out for readers who might not have have read the poem, um, but I think you know, one of the main things for me that that Robinson is doing um, is showing us that poetic language and this kind of capacity of the figure of anachronism holds these different temporalities together. Um, and it shows us that capitalism um, requires anachronism, that it requires these forms of labor that are prior to it, um, these unpaid, unwaged forms of labor in order for capitalism to operate.
1: Mm. And, and you also, well, as you mentioned, Mayor Robinson may not be a very well-known uh, or canonical writer, but you talk about Wordsworth as well, and uh, uh, you discuss the anxieties about witchcraft in England in England, and how they manifest themselves in where, where Wordsworth's works. So how does it uh, manifest itself there, and how does it relate to the idea of um, the, the, that rhetorical language of accumulation,
0: um Yeah, I mean, that's another chapter where I'm bringing together. I mean, it, the Robinson chapter is focused almost entirely on Robinson and and her poetry. Mm. Uh, the Wordsworth chapter brings together a number of people. So I have um, a very famous poem by Wordsworth, The Thorn, along with a probably mm. almost entirely unknown poem that was begun by Wordsworth but fim- finished by Coleridge called The Three Graves. And then I'm also working really heavily with a treatise by Benjamin Moseley, a treatise on sugar, which is on its surface, um, a kind of medical text about the benefits of sugar for working populations, but that is really um, an, a pro-slavery tract, um, but has all of these crazy um, uh, attempts at historicizing sugar production over time and that along the way discounts, of course, the knowledge and the sugar production of um, Arabic cultures um, prior to the 18th century. But that's just to kind of uh, give people a sense of, of all of the texts that I'm working with in that chapter. I would say in in context of the Wordsworth the the Thorn poem, um, what I try to do with that poem is shift um, attention away from um, the central character Martha Ray, who um, in the narrative of the poem is implied to be potentially. Um, a a murderer of her own infant child, um, I try to shift the attention away from that character and onto Wordsworth's very ambivalent description of the um, villagers um, in the village that Martha Ray is from. And the reason that I do that is because the villagers are, um, as I read it, quite condemned for their... um, there there's supernatural fears of martha ray and this idea that um the grave that her child has been buried in uh is itself um a, a kind of like product or invested with the the powers of of witchcraft um so wordsworth i think is quite anxious throughout the lyrical ballads um to uh let's say like eradicate what at that time were seen as a very pre-modern fantasies of superstition or of witchcraft and that these are like forms of stimulation or forms of belief that are archaic and that are pre-modern and need to be worked out of English populations Um, and so he's very much kind of treating the villagers in the poem as a kind of like metonymy of a um uneducated uncultivated english um working poor and so that poem is like registering uh, at least in one way uh the witchcraft act that was passed in i think 1736 which um, did essentially like a 180 on the criminalization of witchcraft, um, prior to 1736, um, anyone, but primarily women could be charged with, with witchcraft, um, out of the fear of its efficacy, out of the fear that witchcraft could actually, did actually have power, what I tried to do in my analysis of the thorn was to shift the focus away from Martha Ray uh, as a potentially a murderess or not, um, or an infanticide s or not, and focus on what I what I understand to be um, at least. Wordsworth as a symptom of the fear over village superstition um, and Wordsworth's lyrical ballads are heavily concerned with this the idea that um, kind of unhealthy stimulants on, let's say, like the common man or the working poor, uh, one of which is superstition and these beliefs in witchcraft needed to be turned into a more regulated, helpful form of belief or helpful form of imagination. Um So in in my analysis of the thorn, what I try to do is show that um, Wordsworth's depictions of the villagers as these kind of violent, potentially mob-like, superstitious um group uh, is itself uh registering the effects of the 1736 witchcraft act which did essentially like a 180 on the criminalization of um witchcraft and superstition in england so prior to 1736 if someone was charged with being a witch um they would be judged and punished um on the with the belief that witchcraft was truly a pernicious, dangerous practice. Um, after 1736, um, the Witchcraft Act uh, penalized um, people for the, the belief in witchcraft um, or the superstition that witchcraft was itself actually efficacious and had real effects in the world. So the 1736 Witchcraft Act was essentially an attempt uh, to, let's say, erase and eradicate, or let's say, dispossess people of an, a belief in an attachment to um, earlier understandings of the world through the supernatural um, and uh, through uh, essentially non-enlightenment forms of causality or um, understanding of the world. Um, so part of the chapter is essentially um, trying to grapple with the different ways that the um, the practice of witchcraft, but also the condemnation of superstition was playing out uh, in different ways in England and in different ways in Jamaica, especially against uh, enslaved populations. Um, And this practice called Obeah, which is still an ongoing practice in Jamaica and still technically on the books illegal. Um, But I'm trying to kind of work through the the both simultaneous and different ways that these practices and beliefs in witchcraft were, um, were being targeted and criminalized and the ways that it was significant in the 18th century to create this idea that superstition was something only in the past. Um, whereas, you know, in a way that people like Michael Tossig and other people have pointed out um, the money form itself or capitalism itself depends upon this incredible superstition and the belief that money itself has value um so i try to undo this narrative that we oftentimes have of like pre-modern superstition into modern rationalism and show how capitalism itself um needs to criminalize certain forms of superstition and also create uh, an intense form of superstition in the investment and money at the same time
1: and uh you You talk about several practices that came about as a result of disposition, and these practices were criminalized. What were mm-hmm. some of these uh practices that were maybe legal
0: um yeah, I mean throughout the book i I try to draw on any number of practices that prior to the 18th century would largely have been understood as very acceptable um common practices. So let's say even wandering from one village to the next, or wandering um mm-hmm. from one township to the next in England, this becomes criminalizes vagrancy um, in, in a particularly intensive way in the 18th century. Um, But I don't mean to say that it was never criminalized before. This is partially going back to the idea of anachronism. Many of the things that I talk about in the book as becoming criminalized had been criminalized at different points in the past, but then became decriminalized or fell out of concern for um, authorities and then had to be reanimated and rejuvenated in newly criminalized forms. So I just want to say that by way of I really work hard in the book to not create these narratives of how things were in the past versus the present or some kind of rupture narrative. Um, So that's kind of just as like a side digression. Um, But some of the other forms that I talk about, I mean superstition and these ideas about witchcraft um, are ones that the chapter on Wordsworth and Coleridge and Mosley are really concerned with, I'm trying to take seriously that um, certain forms of belief that we deride as superstitious today are themselves rooted in um, highly complex forms of life that were rooted in the land and rooted in the earth. Um, this has, you know, some analogy maybe with work that's happening in indigenous studies right now. Um, but so this idea of the belief in the, um, Uh, a kind of supernatural capacity of language, a supernatural capacity of objects in the world that I understand to be a form of life that came to be criminalized under capitalism through these different forms of, of um, the criminalization of witchcraft. So that's, um, definitely one of the forms of life that I talk about, Um, another one would simply be, um, and this I'm really drawing heavily from Peter Linebaugh on, uh, the ability to take um, surplus, um, let's say products that were made uh, in the production process to take these things home with one and use them for their own purposes without having to pay for them. So for instance, um, uh, a certain kind of like Excess product of sugar uh, that is, let's say, molasses or something that's made as a kind of byproduct in the production process, um, or scraps of um, scraps of fabric or textiles that would have been cast off in the production process. At some point, these things would have been available to workers to take home to use them um, for their own purposes, and this was literally a way that people were able to avoid. Um, having to work for more money um, so these these were objects that uh, were termed perquisites I, I think is what linebaugh um, calls them uh, but this kind of use of the the waste what we think of as waste now of the production process or byproducts of our of our labor um, were turned into um, items that if a worker took them, uh, was understood to be theft so things that um normally or that that commonly would have been able to be taken home for free suddenly became the property the private property of the employer so whatever i mean we can think about this in the kind of silly ways of um uh people kind of like taking staplers or office supplies home from from their jobs today um that this that that itself could be understood as a form of theft, um, but prior to the 18th century, it's a, it a very common thing for people to be able to glean or take um, the the byproduct of the production process. Um, so that's something uh, that becomes really significant in the book. Um, I mean, you could think of the, um, the gendered labor, this comes up in a number of chapters, uh, but the gendered labor of um Emotional labor, effective labor, but also sexual labor that women come to perform uh, um, under capitalism in a way that becomes criminalized uh, in the form of sex work. so this is something that I um that I talk about in the the chapter on words the thorn as well. Um, rioting obviously, um, is heavily criminalized in the 18th century, uh, that becomes, um, an important part of chapter one. Um, so this idea that riots, um, had previously been understood to be a a very, its own kind of moral action to regulate and set prices in a way that people could afford this becomes criminalized instead as a violent activity or a violence against private property um i mean there are other more less let's say other less direct activities that i talk about as well i mean dreaming sleeping leisure time um unproductive time um laying oneself out in a field in the sun uh these are things that i also understand to be activities that if not criminalized become understood to be unproductive, lazy, indicative of criminality, etc. So I mean, one of the things in the book, I think is that I really, I really try hard not to be reductive in my understanding of what um, forms of life are. um, And I try to capture in every single chapter, multiple practices and activities that were either being criminalized or turned into highly immoral activities um, because of the transition into
1: capitalism. And um, there is a phrase used in the book, and it's by, by an American critic, uh, if I'm pronouncing the first name correctly, or Tons Spillers, and the expression mm-hmm. is "thingliness of empirical bodies." W- what does that mean in the context of your work?
0: Oh man, that's um, that's a good question. The let's say in the context of the book, I think I'm kind of threading Horton Spillers together with Fred Moten with um, Hegel and with Mm. David Lloyd, along with the 18th century poet and scientist Erasmus Darwin, to produce this idea of the thingliness of bodies. And to try to be brief about it, um, I would say that this, that the thingliness of empirical bodies registers, um, the kind of sensorial capacity of bodies to be stimulated um, and that as Darwin says um, when we come to learn things we learn things through our senses but because we have multiple senses um, we're always being affected in multiple points at multiple times. Um, so at a kind of, let's say, baseline level, as empirical embodied beings, uh, we learn about the world by being affected in, as a multiplicity, or I think he calls it a composite. Um, so the thingliness that I'm kind of interested in, in looping all of these people together is, um, is in the communal, collective, um, disparate ways that our bodies um, are affected and affectable. And this becomes a highly racialized way of understanding bodies in the 18th century. I mean, Denise Ferrer de Silva um, figures as a very important theorist in the book as well for this, that um, this understanding of a kind of composite or let's say collective sensorial openness to the world gets coded in highly racialized ways such that um Black people, Africans, enslaved people, um, and in different ways, women are too affected and too affectable, that they're always under the um, the domination, let's say, of collective impulse or collective stimulation. Um, and I'm very interested in the thingliness of empirical bodies to um, kind of use, go back to that language again, as a form of knowledge that gets repressed and oppressed in the 18th and the 19th centuries, but that can still be uh, recovered um, for us in the present. And I think that's that kind of recovery is already happening in a lot of contemporary writing, poetry, art. Um, the other thing I'll say about kind of thingliness just really briefly is that the people that I'm looking at in this chapter, including Hegel and Darwin, use two um, items to talk about sensorial thingliness or empirical thingliness. So Hegel uses um, salt, I believe, Darwin uses sugar, and they both talk about the experience of tasting salt and sugar and the ways that it, let's say, um, uh, is felt and experienced um, through taste, touch, um, pressure, um, all of as I said, these kind of composite um, senses. But uh, it don't I don't think it would escape the notice of any listeners that these are both products that were derived through slavery at the time. Um, So again, we have this, there's this kind of repetition of association, both historical, historically materialist and philosophical of the kind of composite um, collective empirical body um, that is rooted in objects that are literally being produced by enslaved bodies. Um, So the kind of thingliness that I talk about tries to index all of that together at the same time.
1: And uh I was really surprised when I realized that you discuss a documentary in your book about romanticism and this there's a documentary <laughs> called um Handsworth Songs from nineteen eighty five. Yeah. And uh, and just for the listeners they can they can watch it for free on YouTube, I'm guessing. So can you briefly introduce this documentary and tell us how it connects romanticism connects with romanticism and racial capitalism?
0: Yeah, sure. These are all, I feel like I'm uh, kind of in a uh, incredibly like intellectual state of mind right now with these questions. (laughs) They're they're very good and layered questions. Um, Yeah. So the, I mean, romanticism for me and the way that I was kind of let's say brought up in romanticism um, isn't in a historic historically periodized way it's very much an idea of an um of an ongoing aesthetic tradition um, some of which people understand to be the ongoingness of a kind of colonial and species um, aesthetic tradition um, a different part that or a different strand of it that would be a kind of ongoingness of a of a more open and, what one could even say, like an anti-colonial movement. Um, So that's just to say that romanticism for me isn't left to the past. Um so that's one reason why I uh, felt able to incorporate this incredible documentary Handsworth Songs uh which was um developed by the Black Audio Film Collective in the 1980s. Um people might be familiar with John Acumfris's work. Um he uh was part of the Black Audio Film Collective along with um, numerous other people um but he would probably be a contemporary reference for listeners um but the handsworth songs is important to me for a number of reasons in the book uh one of which is that it attempts to document um in a very specific way um two riots that happened in um industrialized england 1981 and 1985 during which um black people um th- uh, three black people were murdered by the police and during which there was an immense amount of police violence, um, against black, um, uh, protesters. Um, so the, so Hansworth songs becomes a really important kind of way for me to end the book, um, in a way, because the first chapter is on riots in the 18th century. Um, the last chapter before the coda picks up on riots in the present that um in 19, the 1980s that are bound up with the problem of industrialization and of beginning de-industrialization, but that um the, the Black Audio Film Collective makes a very strong point to root in the in the past. And the past that they rooted in is the past of slavery and enslavement, but it's also um the past of the romantic period and the emergence of um certain ideas about um the about the working day and about capitalism so what they're doing in hansworth songs in part is to cut it to let's say fragment or fissure uh, any clean narrative of a break between the past of slavery, the past of dispossession, and the present of industrialization and deindustrialization. So um, as an artifact, let's say, or even its own archive, it's visually doing the work that I try to do throughout the book, which is to undo these binaries of past and present, or the past is this time of inclusion closure and dispossession. And the present is this time of industrialization. Um, And the, the way that they accomplish this kind of fissuring or fracturing is through like a heavily, heavily montaged, and collaged, um, aesthetic form, which they were kind of criticized at the time for being avant garde with, um, or being too avant garde in their use of this technique. But the thing that really drew me to the documentary is that, um, in one of the, in an interview with them, I, I think it might be with Coco Fusco, I don't remember, but someone says, this is the most straightforward way to represent history. And I was really astonished with this idea that um, a kind of montage or collage form for them was is a straightforward mode of representation of that. That, that statement uh, really um resonated with me in terms of thinking about figure and figuration as a holding together of multiple different temporalities uh, and a holding together of multiple different processes at one time um, and it seemed to me that Hansworth songs in its aesthetic form in its form formality was enacting this figurative principle at the visual level whereas I had been trying to have tried to work throughout the rest of the most of the book on the linguistic level
1: and uh l- l- let me go back to the point that I raised uh at the beginning or would say the point that I mentioned at the beginning so you in the book you talk about yeah, the idea of disposition um accumulation, and in your conclusion, you talk about Palestine, and that's what something I found fascinating, how you connected all these ideas together from romanticism and then you talk about Palestine and understand that now you're also in Palestine yourself when we're doing the interview. So how does romanticism, the idea of romanticism and also disposition in the context of work relate to Palestine, to the Palestinian cause?
0: Yeah. Um, Can you hear me? You were breaking up for a second. Yeah, Yeah, I can. Okay. Perfect. Just wanted to make sure. Okay. Um, Okay. So I'll say uh, one thing more directly related to the book, and then I'll say a few things that have kind of, Come about and expanded um, since I wrote. Um, and you're right. Yes, I'm in um, the occupied territory of Palestine right now, um, and I really appreciate you being willing to um, do this interview while I'm while I'm abroad. Um, I guess as one kind of cautionary note, I would say I'm always hesitant to um, approach this question of what is the relationship between romanticism and Palestine, not least of which because romanticism has historically been and, and is, I think, a very European tradition and a very European framework, um, which isn't to say that um, it is essentially that. Um, but I'm always wary of um, giving the idea at all that what I'm trying to say is that um, Palestine fits into romanticism, um, that is not at all, uh, a kind of argument that I would want to make. Um, that being said, what I, I try to do in the coda and at the end of the book is, is to expand, um, romanticism, not as a category on its own, but romanticism as something that indexes an important, um, the important problem of dispossession and then think about dispossession as a global phenomenon and then think about, um, well, then how can we take romanticism and expand it, um, make it uh, a an anti-European category, let's say, by thinking about dispossession in a global context. And so, of course, this takes me Um, to Palestine, where this possession since 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel has been ongoing in in so many different ways and in so many different ways that are lodged against, um, the reproduction of forms of life, not least of which, um, subsistence and agrarian forms of life. Um, which again is absolutely not to say something about Palestine as pre-modern. It's to say that these agrarian subsistence forms of life are incredibly important to the present and to capitalism. Um, but in the, um, in the coda, I, Am kind of taking up a um, a really beautiful um, idea that Jeffrey Sachs writes about after um, the Modern Language Association rejected um, a resolution to pass a boycott, divestment, sanction resolution um, against uh, Israeli um, institutions. And one thing that he says there is that, um, and I know this gets in the weed a little bit for people who are, are not familiar with the BDS campaign, but one thing that he says about the Modern Language Association refusing to endorse the Palestinian civil society call to boycott Israeli institutions, um, is that it demonstrated a failure of reading on the part of the MLA membership, which is somewhat ironic because the Modern Language Association is the association of literature professors and language teachers. Um, so one thing that I tried to think about in the CODA are the ways that um, what a, a real anti-colonial reading practice entails is a destruction and a deconstruction of a a category of capital L literature that makes it impossible for us to think about the condition about conditions of dispossession in the present as part of the work that we do Um, and that what a real practice and method of reading um, or an anti-colonial practice of method reading would entail is an engagement with these historical conditions of dispossession that to me are inseparable from and irreducible from a very long tradition of literature that um, as the book presents it, uh, one starting point for that relationship between dispossession and literature is romanticism. Um, But I mean, since I finished the book, i Been involved in in a number of projects that I'm really excited about coming to fruition in the next couple of years, um, and that are really starting to think about the ways that um, British literary studies and especially 18th and 19th century British literary studies literally cannot engage with Palestine because we are so oriented um, and we understand literature so much through the category of the European nation state um, and. This makes it impossible to think about Palestine um, in the historical context of the 18th and the 19th century, in which Palestine did exist and was referenced as Palestine, um, because Palestine wasn't organized as a European nation state. Um, It didn't have the kind of bordered, uh, ethnocentrist, uh, exclusionary um, identities that European nation states were um, establishing at the time. So one of my interests in turning towards Palestine in a historical sense, um, which also requires us to think about Palestine in the present, I think, but in a historical sense, is because um, thinking about literature, culture, life in Palestine in this in the historical period that we call Romanticism would literally entail the abolition of the category of literature as we. Treat it through a a solely um, nationalist, statist lens. Um, So I'm very interested in that. I'm working on some pedagogical materials right now that will be published soon on the Undisciplining Victorian Classrooms website that will help familiarize people with how to teach about Palestine in the 19th century. That's a collective and a collaborative effort. I'm really excited about, about those materials coming out um, And so yeah, a lot of a lot of what I'm thinking about right now has to do with um, the mini, reasons that are epistemological, that are theoretical, historical, and philosophical, that have mandated and and legitimated the erasure and exclusion of Palestine from our understandings and to our own detriment, like deeply to our own detriment in thinking about what literature means and what reading should do against, as Jeffrey Sachs is trying to say, exclusionism, borders, nationalism, etc.,
1: uh, thank you very, very much for this conversation. When you're talking about uh, Palestine and the 18th and 19th century, I was reminded of the book that actually I came across a few months ago. It was called uh, Palestine in the Victorian Age. And it's actually making the same point you were doing that Palestine was recognized and it was named Palestine back in the 19th century. So uh, that, that was a very interesting book that I w- was just reminded of when you were talking about. Um, Palestine, in the context of your book. Uh, thank you very, very much. for. Oh, yeah. Uh, that book is by. Yeah, go ahead, please.
0: Oh, I was going to say, yeah, that book is by Gabriel Pauly. Yeah, it's That's by right. Gabriel yeah, Pauly. Yeah. He's amazing. And he's working with us mm. on these um, pedagogical materials. So I just want to give a shout out to him. It's, an, it's mm. an amazing book.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And I think there's a podcast on that book on a New Books Network. So uh, for those listeners who have enjoyed this conversation, they can also listen to that one as well. Uh, Thank you very, very much for uh, your time and for talking to us about your wonderful book on New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much.